1: Hey there, thought we'd do another quick one today, round robin, lightning round, quick questions, we'll do two, maybe three, we'll see how fast we go. First one does have to do with speed. Cheers for the marathon runners. You're a runner, do any sort of sport, you know the feeling of a second wind, you're struggling, it's rough, but then something washes over you and it's way better. You've got the energy, you're moving again. One of you emailed in to ask, is that a real thing or am I imagining it? And if so, what explains it? So. Got a couple people here. First, Dr. Kara Hall.
2: I am a primary care sports
3: medicine physician.
1: At Keck Medicine of USC, also we have... Uh, William Roberts.
3: I'm a physician in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Minnesota.
1: Also chief medical officer for the American College of Sports Medicine. So what do we think? about second wind or, you know, some people call it like the runner's high.
3: I kind of separate them as, as concepts. And I, I think of second wind is that being pulled from the valley of despair as you're competing and suddenly you've got enough energy to keep going.
2: Uh, some people can describe it as a state of euphoria, but I have used the term second wind to refer to any sort of burst of energy after you start feeling tired, uh, usually at the end of your day? The runner's high. I
3: kind of associate it with that good feeling you get from physical activity, and I just feel good for the rest of the day.
1: Right. First thing to understand, as we often find out here, word choice. It means a lot. Different things for different people. Maybe you agree with one of those more than the others. But if we try to narrow it down to an in-competition or during-workout thing, that boost of energy, real or not?
2: Yeah. So I think it depends on your definition of real. So if you mean real in terms of something chemically going on, I think there's a lot of debate about that. There's been some research to show that in the bloodstream, after you go for a run or exercise, there are increased endorphin levels.
1: The pain-blocking feel-good chemicals, that's one theory. The other is you're just coming into balance at a certain point, because when you got out of the car, you were still resting. And then suddenly, you weren't, and it takes time for your body to figure out what the heck is going on.
3: You know, old engines used to have to warm up before you really got them going in the winter. You know, our bodies need to kind of get lubricated and get all the systems working to work well and convert oxygen and. The energy compounds to muscle energies.
2: And you almost feel a little rusty when you start off, but once the blood gets flowing, you really find your rhythm.
1: Your breathing settles into the rhythm, and this is kind of complicated, but you also start to burn the fuel from different points in your body's reserve. So you feel better when you're past, like, your first round and when you stay at a moderate intensity. So that's theory two. You want theory three? Whatever happens, you get a big confidence boost somewhere, and that is good.
3: I think it's pretty hard to separate the mind and body, and almost anything we do, and I'm a, a firm believer that there's a real interaction between the two.
1: So this one is maybe something's going on, but more of it is mental than whatever is actually going on. Bottom line, they haven't figured this one out yet, but some people swear by it. So if you felt it, Dr. Hall has once says it felt like she could have kept going forever.
2: I did not believe it existed until I had that one run, and I was truly so jealous of the people who get this on a regular basis. Like if I could guarantee that I would have that, I would attempt a marathon. Absolutely. So it's interesting. I I wish we knew.
1: Best advice. If you get it, you'll know it. So don't waste it.
3: Yeah, I'd agree with that one. That's a good saying to remember.
1: Second stop, this is the printing press. Get out your language books. Let's hope you're not trying to learn English, because we always hear it's so difficult. Part of the reason is all sorts of mechanics that don't really make sense to people, but also something else.
4: Our spelling is uh, notoriously
1: challenging, and kids who learn English,
4: and adults too, they have to spend a lot of time learning spelling.
1: Our favorite linguistics professor is back with us, Jay Paget, UC Santa Cruz. You want to do a few of these? Let's go. Why does Knife have a K? He doesn't need it. Why does doubt have a B? He doesn't need it.
4: A lot of what is going on is simply that people don't want to change spelling. The problem is that language changes. And so, you know, if you could hear somebody speaking Shakespearean English, which then you would recognize it as English, even though it might be hard to understand everything. If you heard Middle English, which was Chaucer's English, let's say, then it would be really hard to understand anything. And if you heard Old English, then it would sound like something like German or something, too, you wouldn't understand a thing. So the language is changing all the time. The sounds are changing all the time. The way we pronounce words is changing. But spelling is really conservative, and so the language kind of changes out from under it.
1: So basically, it worked back then, but not here, not now.
4: Yeah, so in Old English, the word for knife was pronounced something like knief, with the K in there. And same with knight, like knight and shining armor, and the same with knave.
1: Eventually... We lost him in the pronunciation, but again, we kept the spelling.
4: Doubt is even, like it's like aggressively conservative. So what happened was it comes from Latin, dubitare, and there was a B in that, and that evolved into French, and the French lost the B, and they didn't have it in their pronunciation or in their spelling, so in French the word is "doute," and we borrowed that word, you know, uh, some hundreds of years ago, and it didn't have a B in it then, and somebody, at some point, noticed that there was a B in the Latin form of the word and decided, well, that should really be in there. Uh, <laughs> so that's how conservative spelling can be, right? It's like, not only do you not want to get rid of letters, but you'll stick letters back in because an ancient language had it there.
1: You know what did play a role in all this? Yeah, it was the printing press. That was somewhere around the 1500s.
4: And since then, especially, nobody wants to reform it. It used to just be like everybody, you know, writing in their manuscript. They had some idea of how things were spelled from whatever they read. But there was a lot of making stuff up, a lot of variability in that.
1: All right, last one. Think we can squeeze it in back at the hair place so we can dye our gray hair. Why? Why does it turn? Why do we get gray hair?
5: So my name is Sandy Johnson, and I'm a board-certified dermatologist at Johnson Dermatology Clinic in Fort Smith, Arkansas.
1: And she's going to tell us.
5: It's really genetically determined is the main factor, So some people will genetically lose their pigment in their hair at a young age, and some will at a later
1: age. Some hairs go gray, and then more go gray, and then eventually it's white. And it doesn't turn so much as it grows out that way. You have a strand fall, and then that one will grow back gray. Why? Well, the easiest way is this. There's a part under your skin where the hair grows from. It's like a bulb for a flower. The pigment makers are in there. And as you get older, they get older and they kind of get tired. We all get tired as we get older. And it means for them, no more color.
5: If you don't get a certain amount of protein in your diet, that can make it happen earlier. If you have a lot of stress in your body, um, either emotional stress or um, physical stress, That can make your body kind of give all of the important nutrients to more vital organs, say your heart, and not to your hair.
1: So let's talk about stress. Uh, We'll go big and then we'll dial it back a little bit. These apocryphal tales we always hear, uh, something terrible happens and and someone's hair goes white fast. Can that happen?
5: So one of my favorite um, mythological stories is about Joan of Arc. So supposedly Joan of Arc turned white overnight is what they say about her hair. Her hair turned white overnight. What the historians believe is that she actually had a great amount of stress and developed something called acute alopecia areata, which is when your hair sheds. And alopecia areata preferentially takes out the pigmented hairs. So you're left with the white hairs. So when people say that somebody turns white overnight, we think they actually have a condition called alopecia areata, where their body attacks their hair and most notably the pigmented hairs um, and all those fall out and you're left with white hair.
1: So maybe she was half and half already and then what was left was white? What about sustained stress? Well, that'll increase shedding. So the turnover's faster. And when you turn them over faster, those hairs, you're more likely to have them grow back without the pigment. You're speeding everything up. The thing to know here is it's going to happen someday, but you can make it worse, whether you mean to or not.
5: We are born with our genetics, but we can influence what happens from the environment.
1: Personally, I'm ready for it. I've already got, like, a little patch that's been there since I was, like, 25. Hasn't grown yet, but I'm sure it's about to. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. I've got questions at odyssey.com if you want to send in an email. Talk later. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive.